Okay, so we've been walking through the Apostles' Creed. Now, um, when, we, when we look at where we're at uh, today with the Apostles' Creed, I'm going to have them pull it up there. Um, and where we're at is to the section where uh, it says, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, uh, was crucified, and, and then we have dead and buried. And then the last part there is it says he descended into hell, which we'll unpack uh, towards the end of this. So we're going to look at how he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. Now, when you first look at this, uh, the first question I have is, how did Pilate get his name mentioned here? Like, why? Um, you have Mary, which makes sense. You have Jesus Duh, uh, the foundation. And, and then we got Pilate randomly uh, in here. What, what were they trying to do? Why, why is he there? Um, what the early church was doing by placing Pilate's name in here was it was reminding us that, that Jesus lived in real history. Okay, this wasn't a myth. This wasn't a, a made-up story, that j- this legend that came about. Like, no, Jesus was a real person. We're, we are confessing a historical event. God took part of human history. He came in real flesh uh, as a real person in a real space and time. Okay, so that's what it's communicating. Now, um, I want us to actually then read uh, the... Uh, uh, the death, the crucifixion, and uh, the burial here. And, you know, uh, that's, it's a lot of verses, okay? So if you're young, hang with me, all right? This too shall pass. And, uh, but I really want you to hear it. Like, uh, there's no way either I summarize it or we just read it. And I, I think it's really important, one, that we read scripture, that we understand it. But also, when it comes to what happened with Jesus, um, This just walks us right through it. And so I'm going to read out of Matthew, Matthew 27. I'm going to start in verse 24. Like I said, we're going to read all the way to his burial, okay? Um, But really think about what Jesus went through, okay? Says this in verse 24 of Matthew 27. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Man, if that doesn't just pull or hit differently, that's what they did to Jesus. Beat him to the place where he's essentially unrecognizable, they mock him, they spit on him, they slap him. They throw a purple robe mocking him as the proclaimed savior, the king. They twist uh, a crown of thorns and shove it into his skull. Un- skull unimaginable pain. Unimaginable pain. And, and he's not even to this next part. In verse 32, it says, As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. And when he tasted it, he would not drink it. 
And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That's, that's noon to three. So this is, this is not normal. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling uh, Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This is nuts. Okay? You're like, oh, zombies are fake. Mm? Uh-huh. Yeah. Had this conversation with my boys in our backyard to try and get them to come into the house. And, uh, and they, they baffled me. They said, well, Dad, where'd they go? Because I was trying to tell them, you know, it's okay. It's over now. And I, I looked at them. I said, we don't know. <laughs> It doesn't tell us. You know, and they got big old eyes and just you're looking around the yard waiting for, for a body. <laughs> okay, now that we're back dialed in here. <laughs> this is crazy, guys. Some of you are just like, oh, he went to the cross. Like, man, stuff is happening says, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of, sons, of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away, 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Now, that is a whole lot, I know, but man, we get, we get this picture, and honestly, it's a graphic, it's a horrific picture of what Jesus went through. We know that the Romans had literally perfected pain and torture and, and how to delay it and prolong it when they crucified somebody on the cross, uh, to, and literally, Jesus is beaten before the cross, okay? Jesus is beaten so badly, they grabbed this guy to help carry the cross for him to there, and so there, there's Jesus, uh, unrecognizable. There, he's stripped, and he is just completely destroyed. His body's in shambles, and there, they nail him to the cross, and it's there on the cross where, where literally you, you, you start getting to the place where you can't breathe, so you try to push up, but you've got nails. You can't, you can't get leverage, and so you uh, ev- eventually drown in your own blood the most horrific image we can imagine in our minds. And you go, he went through all of that. Why in the world did he have to do that? Why? Why? You know, in 1 Peter three eighteen, it tells us why. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, it says this, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You guys, if you are a Christian, this is your hope. This is your hope. See, there's this, uh, we talked about this a little bit last week. There's this longing in all of us. There's this longing for more, this longing for fulfillment. There's this longing for, I wanna get my way, right? And I know what's best uh, for me. Uh, Unfortunately, though, uh, we read in in Romans 3.10 that none are righteous, it says, no, not one. And and, and so uh, we we talked about this last week, this this literally, we've all been infected uh, literally with sin. And so uh, we're, we're, at constant war with that within ourselves, uh, within our struggles. And, 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 and we're reminded over and over again, man, I, I think I'm doing better than I fall, then I stumble, uh, then I do this and I lose my temper and, and all of these things. And we're reminded why it says there's none righteous, no, not one. None of us measure up. None of us are perfect. None of us could ever be uh, good enough. And I think what's so depressing about this is we just have to come to this conclusion. You guys, especially when you look at the cross. And the, the conclusion is this. We aren't good people. There's your message. Let's pray. <laughs> we aren't good people. And we, we continue to like convince ourselves, right? Like, oh, I'm a good person. I know I'm a good person. But you know what the cross says? No, you're not, Steve. You're not. You're not a good person. See, you guys, the Bible, and when we look to the cross, what what it really shows us is it shows us the seriousness of sin and sin's consequences. That's what the cross does. I mean, in Romans, you know, like there was this divide, right? Like, like, because you're you're sinful. In Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in, in the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9.22 says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So you guys, there had to be a sacrifice. See, because God is holy, he has to punish sin. 
Why? Because you know what sin is at its core? It's a declaration of war against the authority of God. That's what sin is. Sin is me saying, I am against you. It's, it, it, it's me saying, I know what's best for me, God. And, and so your will, your plan, that's now, that's now down here. It's me now. Okay? So, so God couldn't just, because he's holy, go, oh, okay, Steve, great. Right? No, he, he had to do something. And, and what's so beautiful is he didn't leave us in our humanity without hope. He didn't leave us stuck in this sinful state, in this condition that we're all in. In a display of miraculous grace, he sent his only son to be the once and for all sacrifice for our sin. As we looked at last week, he's the initiator of this, and he is literally the word uh, made flesh, incarnation, the incarnational ministry of Jesus, where he became one of us in the most humblest of ways, right, as a baby. But as Jesus came and, and uh, came for this purpose of redemption, we see uh, this accusation that's made against him. And this is what's really important because Jesus didn't come and, 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 and just grow up and do his task. What we see leveled against Jesus throughout scripture is, is this. This was the accusation that he was a friend of sinners, Multiple gospels highlight how, how this was his reputation. This is what they said about Jesus, that Jesus was a friend of sinners. Now, now who are they talking about here uh, when they're leveling this accusation against him? Well, who did he hang out with? Okay, because uh, in our mind, if, if Jesus is coming here, he's finding the, the, the leaders, right? The, the, the best, the most qualified, uh, the people that kind of have it together, right? The, the ones that, that are, have a heart after his own heart. And, and, and yet we see him hanging out with who? Uh, it says the drunkards, uh, the prostitutes. In fact, he was uh, accused of being a drunkard. Uh, the gluttons, um, literally the, the tax collectors. Um, these are the people that, that they were like, He's a friend of sinners. They weren't like going, oh, he's such a friend of sinners. No, they were accusing him of this. And when you look at the people he hung out with, these are all the people that you would probably go, I need to be different than them. I need to separate myself from them. I don't even want to be in the same building that they're in. And yet those are Jesus's friends. Guys, tax collectors were awful. I mean, they were horrible people. Um, I mean, you know, like when you think about what they would do, they literally worked for, for Rome, uh, who literally had the whole country is in control by Rome and, and under persecution from Rome. And so they represent Rome and they would sell out their own people and then they would rip off their own people for their own personal profit. So they're living lavishly while they're stealing from their own people. And if they didn't pay up, they'd have them put in jail. These guys were awful. And Jesus is like hanging out with them. And not only that, he chooses one of them to be his disciples. Right? Like, like hey, you, you're awful. I want to use you. Not only him, but then he, he goes, like, I mean, you look at the people. Uh, he, he, he finds a religious extremist. He goes, I want to use you. A religious extremist? 
Except he says, I'm going to use you a little differently than what you're used to. <laughs> I mean, like, like you think of the people that he surrounded himself with, the people that he loved. Um, I had somebody ask me the other week, and they said, Steve, should Christians actually have any friends that aren't Christians? And honestly, it kind of broke my heart. And what I believe they were trying to seek out is a way that was comfortable at the end of the day. To be able to be in community with only people that look and think like they did. And, and believe what they believe. And you, there's no way you can come away you can come away with that conclusion when you look at how Jesus modeled and lived his life. He was literally accused of being a friend of sinners. And so guys, that needs to be something that we think about. It needs to be something, because you know what? Our pull, our natural bend is what? Comfort and like-mindedness. And so there's always a pushback towards anything that is different, isn't there? In all of us. And, 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 and so when we think about what Jesus modeled, we have to remember this. And why this is so powerful is this. Jesus befriended his enemies. And not only did he befriend his enemies. So Jesus comes, uh, is born uh, in, in the most humblest of ways uh, to, to impoverished young adults. And then he grows up, he befriends sinners. And, and, and as he befriends these sinners, these enemies of his, essentially, what does he do? He sees and acknowledges where they're at. They're separated from a perfect and holy God. And so not only does he befriend them, but then he says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you. And, 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 and along the way, he tells them, his disciples in John 15, 13, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Okay? See, you guys, at, at the end of the day, <laughs> you could sum up this teaching with this. Jesus' death reconciles us to God. Okay? Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so when you look at the cross, uh, when, you, when you start to understand, when you take yourself there and, and, and see the purpose and the why, guess what? You're going to come away with, with two conclusions. And here's the first, and it's not so encouraging. The first conclusion is this, you're worse than you thought you were. Right? It, it, it's like, you know, when people, when they read scripture, and I said this like, I don't know, like four weeks ago, uh, scripture is like a mirror. It's not for binoculars. Okay? It, it, it reflects, it shows me what's there. It shows me what is truly there. And guess what? A lot of times I don't like that. Guys, when you look to the cross, what you see, which is really tough, is that sin matters. When you look to the cross, there's no way to just go, oh, it's just a little sin. It's not that big of a deal. I know he says to not do that, but that's okay. Everybody else is doing it. And I heard somebody say that, it, that it's okay. And uh, they seem to be normal, so I'm gonna believe them. And I'm just gonna go with it. Um, now, deep down, we know what's wrong, but we continue to justify and explain away our sin in, in, in such a way that it communicates it's really not that big of a deal. Yeah, I gossip a little. I can't control it. <laughs> you know, oh, it's just through text. You know, that's not in the Bible. So, but what we do is, is, is we do this. Guys, you cannot look at the cross and belittle your sin. Why? Because my sin put him on the cross. There's no way to disassociate yourself from it. There's none righteous, no, not one. So when I look to the cross, I can't go, oh, 
Here, here you go, Pilate. There you go, Jews back then. Or even in my current condition and look at people who I think just may be worse than me and go, well, yeah, well, that's why he did it. That's why I did it. No, he did that because of me. And so guys, when we look to the cross and we say Christ died on the cross for our sins, that has to mean something. Because it was for us. It was for you. It was for me. It wasn't for just some random people. He went to the cross for us. And so, our, guys, what we see and what we learn is that, that sin, it, it matters. It's offensive to God. It's so offensive to God that Jesus was killed because of it. And by his suffering, we not only see the gravity of sin, we not only see our, our, our current state, but guys, here is the good side, is we also see how much he loves us through how he suffered on the cross for us. Guys, you're worse than you thought you were, but you're more loved than you could have ever imagined. Jesus died to open the way of salvation for you and for me. Theologians call this the great exchange. Jesus, perfect and sinless in every way, is executed to pay for sin. And going to the cross, as we read in 1 Peter 3.18, it says what? That he might bring us to God. That's why he went to the cross. So Jesus takes yours and my sin upon himself, and he suffers the penalty for it. He takes on our death, our condemnation, literally the wrath of God that was supposed to be poured out on me is poured out on him. And and, and we see this described all throughout Scripture. The prophet Isaiah speaks to it in Isaiah 53, 6 and 7. He literally says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Boy, that sounds like me. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Guys, the gospel tells us that if you are willing to turn to Jesus in faith, your sin is imputed to him. It's placed on him. He pays for it in his own death, the righteous suffering for the unrighteous. But guys, what I love about 1 Peter 3.18 is it talks about all of our sins were covered at the cross. All of it. Guys, this is so encouraging because so many of us hold hostage the gospel because of what we've done or said or our past or our continual struggle and addiction. And we say, no, no, I'm unworthy. I can't do it. I can't measure up. He, he won't love me. Guys, there is no sin. I don't care what you've done or said. There is no sin that's greater than the cross. There is no sin with pow- more power than the cross of Jesus. He set you free. He set you free. His death reconciles us to God. And you guys, this wasn't like, like, like this, this didn't just happen. All of this was part of a perfect plan from our incredible God. 
See, when, when the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, and there's this huge crowd in front of him in Acts 2, and 23, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Guys, the cross wasn't something that surprised God. He wasn't like, oh no, this is out of my control. How'd this happen? You guys, this was God's plan. This was Jesus's purpose. In fact, Jesus throughout his ministry, as we went through the book of John, we, we, we heard him speak to this. In John chapter 10, uh, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Later on in that same chapter, in verse 18, he says, no one, and he's speaking to his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Okay, so this was a plan. He, he, this was his purpose. He says in Hebrews 12, too, for the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross and endured it. For the joy, the joy was in glorifying the father from the cross. He brought glory to the Father through his work. This was a planned event for you and for me. You guys, and, and what this also tells us is this. God isn't just this, this Father, because sometimes we read that and go, man, God is mean. So he just left Jesus up there? Like, no. What we see is this describing a son who willingly gave up his life for his people. And this is why Christians look to Jesus on the cross as a victor, not a victim. Guys, he came for this purpose and he fulfilled it. And that's why we see the cross as this central figure, this point, this image all throughout the rest of time. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. He goes on in Galatians to say, I'm gonna boast in the cross. In Galatians 6, 14, I will boast in the cross. You guys, without the cross, we had no life. There's no ministry, there's no hope, and there's no joy. It was through the cross that Jesus purchased the church. We as a church were purchased by the blood of Jesus and that same blood brings us together and it makes us one. But you guys, what I love about this is there's even more here. When we think about him dying and reconciling us to God, see, it says Jesus takes your sin onto himself and gives you his righteousness. Okay, I want you to hear that. So Jesus uh, not only dies, but, but what does he do here? He takes your sin onto himself, but then he gives you his righteousness. 
That's crazy. Guys, because uh, a lot of times we look at this and we go, man, uh, it's kind of like an eraser, right? He, he wiped the whiteboard of our lives like, oh, we're clean again, or, or he just canceled the debt, right? So I get to start over from ground zero, essentially, and, 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 and that. Like, no, it's so much greater than that, you guys, so much greater. The gospel says that because of what Christ has done, he sees you now as completely righteous, Okay, you are clothed in the righteousness of God. Jesus gets your sin and you get his righteousness. This is the great exchange. So it's not just like, oh, thank you, you canceled my debt. No, you are forever viewed differently by a perfect and holy God because you now have been given through the work of Jesus on the cross, you've been given the righteousness of God. Oh. Right, so you don't have to start over. And, and just go, oh, I gotta start from scratch. No, you're totally different. You are totally different immediately when you receive him as Lord and Savior. And guys, here's what you have to do here. You have to guard your heart against the enemy's main tool, which is what? Guilt. Okay, so, so he says it's done, it's purchased on the cross and what the enemy's gonna try and continue to do in your life, I promise you this, is he's gonna try and, and replay over and over again like a highlight reel, all of your mistakes, all of your failures, all of the times you slip up, make a mistake, fall back into something, um, he's gonna try and, and, and bring that to your mind. But that's when we go back to 1 Peter 3.18 when it says Jesus suffered once and for all, for all sins. Okay, it's, it's, it's done. And so, you guys, you can have a clear conscience because of the gospel. That guilt doesn't have to weigh you down. The gospel will battle the guilt and win. Guys, and this is one of the reasons we regularly celebrate communion, that we regularly celebrate the Lord's Supper in worship. You guys, communion is an opportunity to remind ourselves that he makes us clean, that he makes us new. We think about his body broken, his blood poured out all so that our sin could be dealt with and we're reminded that he lives in us and that when God looks at us now, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And then we take that communion together and it's a powerful thing. It cannot be just this normal thing that we just do. And then lastly, the last phrase that we see here in the creed was what? He descended into hell. Now, uh, this, is, this is one of those that you go, huh? In fact, I was asked last week by a guy that I'm discipling. He goes, hey, man, what did Jesus do after he died? And I go, well, he rose again. And he goes, no, 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 no. But what did he do in between? And I was like, ooh, that's a great question. You need to come Sunday. Um, <laughs> So we see in the creed, it says what? He had descended into hell. Now, uh, many churches and denominations, they uh, have decided to translate this as he descended to the death, or they just don't read this part because the Bible doesn't teach it, okay? So let's just put that to bed. Uh, but what we see, you guys, is the early church, uh, as, it, as it first was writing up the creed around 200 AD, the intention was once again to what? To summarize the teachings of, of scripture for instruction, uh, to guard against the heresies trying to get into the church, to unite Christians uh, together to the core elements of their faith. And this phrase here that he descended to hell that wasn't included until the later uh, uh, versions of the, or revisions were made in the apostles, 
Apostles' Creed, um, and it was done by a Roman theologian named Rufinus in 390 AD. Now, what in the world, what are they trying to affirm here? What are they trying to communicate by stating this and adding this to the creed? Well, here's a couple different opinions. Some argue that the phrase he descended to hell is trying to communicate that Jesus took the full brunt of God's wrath on the cross. Okay, so it's not just this physical death that Jesus experienced, but the wrath of God against sin, which he did uh, go through, which he did experience. So Jesus bore the brunt of God's wrath for the sins of the world on the cross. And so they would say that you could agree with saying that on the cross, Jesus experienced hell. Okay, so that's one view. Another view uh, is is that Jesus actually went to hell after dying on the cross, that he literally went there for three days, um, and, and the problem with this view is what? Well, you can't find it in Scripture. Okay, so the creed's purpose is to what? It's to point to Scripture. So if, if you can't find it in Scripture, well, that's a problem, right? The other problem with this is there's other biblical texts that seem to contradict this understanding. Uh, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise in Luke 23, 43. Jesus uh, cries out from the cross in John 19, 30, it is finished. Okay, not it's almost finished. I'm close to finishing it. I just got to go down there for a little bit. No, it says it is finished. Okay, um, we also see um, uh, w- when he says uh, in Luke 23, 46, uh, he says, Father, what? Into your hands I commit my spirit. He doesn't say in a little bit. So this would imply that he's going immediately to be with his heavenly father. So this can't be the interpretation here. The last view uh, says this, and this is the one that I resonate with. This uh, affirms that Jesus actually died, okay? And where we get that is, here's where the confusion lies. The Greek word used in the Apostles' Creed for hell here is Hades, which sometimes gets translated as hell. Hades, though, like the Hebrew word sheol, means the grave, the place of the dead. It's a general term, okay? The term Gehenna, which is also used in the New Testament, that means the place of punishment and is what we normally mean when we say hell, okay? But the creed does not say that. The creed does not say Jesus descended into Gehenna. It says he descended into Hades, So the grave or the place of the dead. And what this is affirming is what we see in scripture that Jesus actually died. Okay? That's what it's trying to affirm when it says that statement that he actually died. He experienced death and the judgment of sin on our behalf. Now some of you just gained some information that you could care less about. That's okay. When you see it again, you'll know. But guys, ultimately, this comes back to the cross, doesn't it? The cross tells me my sin is awful, but God's love is greater. And so you guys, you got to ask yourself, what does the cross mean to you? What does the cross mean to you? And what do you see when you look at the cross? Let's worship from that place and let's take communion here together, okay? Let me pray.